All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Nothing else to do this week except, of course, for the lab that we'll be doing a little later today. But we do have next week the third homework, uh, which I gave out, I believe, a while back. You should have that. Thought I gave that back right after the exam, but let me know if you don't have a copy of it yet. I'll make sure I can get some. And that is due next week. We'll cover all but the last chapter. We'll cover the last chapter on Monday. So except for the last five questions, you'll be through all of it, all the material you need for that this week. So it'll be the last five questions. I'll go through over all that on Monday, and then the homework will be due on Wednesday of next week. And as I mentioned last time, I did push the solar observations, which originally for some reason I had due today till November 4th because it was a little too close to the other one. So if you want to turn them in earlier, turn in a copy of your data sheet, you're welcome to. You can still get credit for it, but you don't need to turn it in until November the 4th. And then right after that, we have exam three, which covers this next unit, um, chapter 17 through 22. So that'll be November the 6th, gives you time after the homework, gives me time to look at the homeworks, get them back to you so you can take a look at them before the exam um, in two weeks. So questions? All right, otherwise we have our picture for today. May look quite familiar. Um, come on, clear that out. Uh, Vincent van Gogh's painting of the star Starry Night. So not all the images that we get to see are necessarily things done by NASA or other photographers, but you know, our astronomy is a big thing in art as well and commonly done. And of course, Vincent van Gogh painted this uh, back in the late 1800s. And there's a lot of astronomy in it. We don't know exactly what everything is intended to be. There's been some research that's been done to try to figure out you know, maybe what pattern of stars he meant or what pattern of stars he had seen, or if some of these are planets. The one that's unusually bright close to the horizon, maybe that could be Venus, which people have researched and said Venus would have been visible from where he was at that point. Venus would have been visible in the sky. So it's possible that that with the big bright halo there is meant to represent Venus. But the other ones are still in question as to what the, whether they represent any pattern of stars or whether they represent any specific constellation or area of the sky or they're just meant to represent stars in the sky without any uh, reference to actual patterns there. The one that does stand out is, of course, the moon. So moon is very uh, prominent on the right-hand side here. Uh, the only difference with the moon is that, of course, there will st was still some artistic liberty taken with it because the moon can never look like that. Because if you notice how wide the crescent is, almost closing in on itself, there's no position the moon can ever take that would give us that type of view. The crescent would be, this ends would be cut off a lot more. There'd be a lot, not this wide of a crescent going all the way, almost all the way around and closing. So... Nothing wrong with it. You take artistic liberties with a lot of things to make things look the way you want them to look. But in terms of reality, that's not the way you know, the moon would actually look. It look in the sky. The other thing was the swirls, and that's another one. Again, you know, we don't know what Van Gogh had in mind when he painted them, whether that was just a, something to simulate the motions in the sky or if it has to do with uh, 
things like comets, which would have a vaguely similar appearance in the sky. Uh, galaxies were not known at this time, but we knew of spiral nebulae, which looked a lot like that. Drawings of those from the time looked very, very similar, so we don't know if he was trying to incorporate something like that or if it was just, you know, simulating some of the uh, motions that we might see in the sky and the activity of the sky. So, again, a couple different things there, and, you know, wondering what might have been uh, involved, what he might have been thinking in terms of uh, when he put the picture, uh, the painting together, I should say. All right, questions? All righty, well, we'll go ahead and... Get started here then. Let me put that aside. We have just a little bit to finish up. Last time I talked about star formation, I started on chapter 21. I did the first section of it, and I'm going to pick up and take that. Here you go. Some papers back in the next key points. So I'm going to pick up, finish up chapter 21, and then I'm going to stop there and let you have the rest of the time for the lab. So I'm not going to try to jump into 22 because I don't think I should have any trouble getting through chapter 22 on Monday. So I'm kind of just going to leave it there and we'll go over, get over chapter 22 on uh, Monday. So I left these two. I stopped slightly early uh, last time just to give you a chance, just to kind of put all of this together because the last two sections of this are looking at planets, not planets in our solar system but planets outside our solar system. And we're going to look at some of the evidence for these and how we can go about detecting planets outside our solar system. As of earlier this week, when I looked up the number, there are now 4,100 plus known outside our solar system. Those have all been detected in the last about 30 years now. So 30-some years ago, 31 years ago, we didn't know of any planets confirmed outside our solar system. Now we know of over 4,000. So it's something that has exploded over the last few decades in terms of being able to detect them. These kind of things have been known. Dusty disks. If you remember last time we talked about how stars form and the leftover material behind them, this is what we're looking at here. So the disks are dusty material around stars that are forming. So you'd have a star forming at the center, and you have this leftover material in a disk around it. The nice thing is they're big. They're a lot bigger than a planetary system. They're also warm. They give off a lot of infrared light. It makes them easy to detect. So they're a lot easier to find than planetary systems. They're not evidence for planets, but they're good evidence that planets seem to be forming around other stars. This we knew of about more than 30 years ago. These things we knew, but we didn't know of any actual planets that had been detected. But we could look in the infrared, look at infrared radiation, and we could look at these large objects that would cover size you know, larger than our solar system, and we were able to pick out uh, though these even a long time ago. And what we were starting to find even at that point was that the disks form around a lot of stars. So it's not that, not that they form very rarely or anything. It seems that it's a natural part of star formation. Therefore, planetary systems should be common. You should see a lot of planetary systems in the universe. And that's what we're going to be looking at. So 
how long does this take? So how long does it take to form a planet? Well, we can't watch these. These, these time frames are all way too long for us. We can't watch things that take hundreds of thousands or millions of years. We can see them, we get a snapshot of them, but it's like getting a snapshot of a person, right? You get them at their age currently. What were they like 20 or 30 years ago? What are they gonna be like 20 or 30 years from now? You don't know. Things, cha things can change. And so in order to do this, you've gotta get snapshots of different systems at all different times. And what we find is that for very young stars, Young stars that are just forming within a million to three million years, that disk goes almost all the way into the star. For the older ones, going up to about 10 million years, the inner regions have lost their dust. So the inner regions, you still have the thick outer dust layer, that's much further out, but the inner layers have cleared out their dust. So within 10 million years, the planets had to form. Now, when we talk about something like our sun being four and a half billion years old, that means the planets formed in the first 10 million years of its life, first instant of its life to us. Out of four billion years, that's really a very, very short time. So the planets don't have lots of time to form. They have to do it pretty quickly, and our solar system probably existed as it exists now for most of that four and a half billion years that the sun has been around. So it's a very quick process. And we can tell that by looking at two different groups of stars. We can look at younger stars, we can look at older stars. Younger stars, that dust disk goes almost all the way in. It goes right down close to the star. After just a few million years, it's been cleared out. It's been cleaned out by the planetary formation. So it must be a very fast process when it occurs. So what's going to happen when we see some of these disks, we see some disks like this. The star would be what's forming at the center. And you start to get disks or rings of material. So material starts to clump together gravitationally. Once a planet starts to form, it material clumps together. And you're starting to see then the absence of material in some of these gaps between the particles. So this would be something that would extend across the size of our solar system. And this would be maybe where you, know, you have a couple, several planets still forming and other areas where there's still lots of debris around at this point. So those gaps, we see that there's little material, but they may actually be the regions where the planets are forming and then their gravity is affecting the patterns that we see. So this is an example of um, HL Tauri. Again, another example of what we call a variable star name. And the, we can see, very clearly see, a, the disk of debris and that there are some patterns within it that really signify that we're seeing the process of planetary formation. So this is the process by which the planets will slowly coalesce. Within a couple million years, it'll be gone. It'll all be cleared out. The planets will be there. It's a, again, a very short process compared to how long these stars will live. So we have to catch them. In order to see this, we have to look at them at their very earliest stages of their lives. So how are we going to find planets? This, this is some of the evidence that planets exist. Some of these things we knew about. Many decades ago, 
Uh, but actual planets we haven't detected until recently. I'm going to give you a number of methods, and then I'm going to talk about a couple of them in a little bit more detail uh, in the coming slides. So these are some of the different methods that have been used. There are what we call astrometric methods. This is actually watching the star move. Because, remember how gravity works. The star pulls on the planet, keeping it in orbit, but guess what? The planet still pulls on the star. And that tugs the star a little bit. A big planet like Jupiter will tug it a lot. A small planet won't tug it as much. So you could actually watch the star wobble back and forth in space. Not big, not a lot, but a little tiny bit because of the gravity of the planet. So you can see that. Now it's nice and simple if you've only got one, one star and one planet going around it. When you start getting more and more planets going around it, like our solar system, it gets a lot more complex, and we'll look at that in just a minute. The most common ones are the next two. These are the two that have been used the most. Radial velocity is similar to astrometric. Astrometric, you're actually seeing the motion. The position of the star changes slightly. Radial velocity, you don't see the position of the star change. Its location does not change, but its velocity does. You can see it coming towards you, planets going away, then the star has to be coming towards you. Not very fast, but you can measure that speed. You can measure the speed of it in its orbit. Half an orbit later, now the planet's coming towards you, the star's going away. You can't see the planet, but you can then measure its velocity changes and use that to be able to figure out the details of the orbit. The other very common one is the transit method. We looked at the Mercury transit last time. Mercury passing in front of the sun. You saw a dark disk on the sun that blocked off some of the light from the sun. Makes the sun a little tiny bit fainter than it would otherwise be. We've found a lot of planets by this method. In fact, of those 4,000 plus, the vast majority of them have been found by the transit method. It's not going to dim it a lot, tiny fraction of a percent, but a measurable amount. And we can then see how, uh, see, the, get determined by when we watch multiple transits, we can determine the properties of the orbit. The other three are more, are, are more rare. We don't use these quite as much. Direct imaging, when you can actually view the planet. That doesn't mean you get a nice view of the planet. That means you can see the little blob of light that is coming from the planet. There are very few cases where that works. It takes a, something very close to us that we can actually separate the star from the planet. Because at the immense distances, normally, even with powerful telescopes, they're going to be merged into one. So we can see some of the patterns that emerge, but we can't really directly image them. There are a few cases where that has been done. Um, Gravitational microlensing, the planet's gravity, if the planet passes in front of a star, not the star it's orbiting, but another star, which may happen from time to time, that star will get brighter, will brighten momentarily. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get uh, further on. But it's uh, gravitational lensing. Essentially, the gravity serves as a lens and focuses the light. So it's a temporary brightening, but it allows us to determine, to find the planet there. And then the very first one, uh, actually 1995 was when it was done. I don't think the actual confirmation was till a few years after that. I think that's when the observations were made. 
was looking at pulsar timing. We haven't talked about pulsars yet. We'll come to those two, two weeks, probably in two weeks. But pulsars are something that's left over when a star explodes. They're, more, they're extremely accurate clocks. They spin very rapidly, tens, hundreds, even a thousand times a second. And they can give off very regular pulses, extremely regular, and we can use those to figure out the orbits. And those were actually the first planets that were detected outside of our solar system. So those are the very first ones that we found. Now I want to go over, I'm not going to go over all of them, but I'm going to go over a couple of them in a little more detail. So the first one I wanted to look at was the astrometric method. Again, that's just gravity. So this is the sun here. That's the center of the sun. This is the outer layers of the sun. The position is showing the, the motion. Where would you measure the sun to be on the sky based on the gravity of all the planets pulling on it? So essentially, it has to do with the gravity. The sun, the, all the planets are pulling on the sun. So if there, a lot of them are pulling in one direction, or at least the more massive planets are pulling in one direction, then the sun will have moved around. And this is the path the sun will have followed from 1945 through... Uh, 1994, 95, about 1995. So about over about a period of 50 years. So the sun would have made a little loop around and it would have, this is the pattern that we would have seen in the sky if you were looking at it. It's extremely small because sun's gravity really big means it's got a really small acceleration even though the force with which the planet is pulling on it is the same. Remember, the forces are always the same, but the accelerations are going to be different by Newton's second law. Real large mass isn't going to accelerate very much. So the sun may move by about its own diameter in distance. So it does move a little bit, and it is constantly moving. This is actually the orbit that the sun is taking as part of the solar system. It's an extremely small uh, motion. For Alpha Centauri, if you had a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting it, the difference would be one one-hundredth of an arc second. If you remember, the large parallaxes were about three-quarters of an arc second, and we had trouble measuring that until the 1830s. These require extremely fine measurements, extremely accurate measurements of the positions to be able to see it. Certainly, this kind of thing is not out of the question. It's something we can measure. But it gets worse and worse as you get further away. As you get to more distant objects, that is going to be further away. So if you're going to go 10 times further away, and Alpha Centauri is only four light years, if you go 40 light years away, then it's going to be one-tenth of that or one one-thousandth of an arc second. So it's going to get even less. It's going to be even harder to measure. If you go to 400 light years or 4,000 light years, you keep adding zeros in here. And that just eventually, very quickly, it gets to the point where you can't measure it. So it works really well for nearby stars. The closer the star, the better. The bigger the planets orbiting it, the better. Because the bigger the planets relative to the star, the larger this shift is going to be and make it easier to measure. So for a star like the sun or more massive stars, it really gets hard to be able to use quickly. But it is a method that works, and it is something we have been able to, to measure. The more common one, look at the more common ones, are, is the radial velocity method. So 
radial velocity, you still have the same thing. It's a little simplified. You have a planet here orbiting around the star. Well, not really. They're orbiting both around a common center. So the star is also making a small orbit. The smaller the planet, the, small, the smaller this orbit gets, the less it will be able to pull on the star. But that means that sometimes the star will be coming towards us in the orbit, blue shifted by the Doppler effect. Sometimes it'll be moving away, red shifted by the Doppler effect. So we would be able to measure that. We can't see this system. We can see the star. We can't see the star's motion on the sky. It's too far away. We can't see the planet, but we can see the effects of the planet. So you can get a blue shift when it's coming towards us. You can get a red shift when it's come going away. And we can see that in a pattern. If we look at it here, this is for one of the earliest ones detected. And the little dots are measurements of the velocity. So these are the velocity measurements. And the dashed line is the curve that is fit to them. And you can find a very regular pattern that takes, in this case, what about one, two, about two and a half years or so to shift. And it goes on. So if you want more confirmation, you can keep watching it. You could watch it for another couple years, make your predictions, and refine things even better. The nice thing with this is that it does not depend on the distance. It doesn't matter how far away that star is. The star could be a few light years away or a thousand light years away. We're not looking at the star. We're not looking at the motions of the star. We're looking at the velocities. So the velocity doesn't change. This, how much it shifts apparently on the sky will change. That'll get smaller and smaller and smaller as you get further away. The velocity is the velocity. It will travel at that speed. So the same system five light years away, if it's moving at 10 kilometers per second, would be the same shift if it were 1,000 light years moving at 10 kilometers per, sec per second. So that's why does this work a lot better than the astrometric method? It doesn't depend on the distance. We can use this as long as we can see the star and make accurate measurements of it, of its velocities, it works. And we can use that to be able to measure the shifts. And it allows us to be able to estimate the mass of the planet by how much it shifts. So the bigger a bigger planet will cause a larger shift on the star. A smaller planet will cause much less of a shift. So it doesn't depend on distance, but it is a lot easier to detect Jupiter than it is to detect the Earth. Jupiter's a lot bigger, pulls on the star a lot more. It's going to give you a bigger shift in radial velocity. Earth being a lot smaller is going to give you a little a smaller shift in radial velocity. Trying to detect Mars, Mars would be even harder. So it's really good at detecting big planets. It's also good at detecting planets that are close to their stars because they orbit fast. If we wanted to do this with the Earth, well, the Earth orbits once a year. Let's say we could detect the velocity. So you'd have from one year, you'd go from peak to peak, you'd start to see a pattern. You'd want to go a little more than a year. You'd want to see that second and that third year. But it might take you a couple years to confirm a planet like the Earth orbiting another, another star. Not too bad. How about Jupiter? Jupiter in our solar system takes 12 years to orbit. So you don't get that. You might see something that's there, but you won't get the full pattern for 12 years. And then if you want to wait to confirm it and get your second whole loop, 24 years. So Jupiter-like planet, a Jupiter-like planet in another star would be harder to detect. It's going to take decades of observations. If you get further out, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, 
Uh, Uranus takes 84 years. Neptune's like 190-some years to make. So they're really they're almost impossible to detect by this. You could, but you've got to wait not just decades, but centuries to be able to see multiple times that they've gone through this cycle. So it works really well, but it works well for star planets that are close. It would be able to detect something like the Earth. If, you had, if, you, if Earth was in the velocity range you could determine, Earth would work fine. Jupiter, kind of on the edge of it now for, for things that have been observed, we're just starting to get to the point where you'd see the first cycle or two cycles of a Jupiter-distanced planet. So the other method that we've used is the transit method. The transit method is when a planet passes in front of a star. We saw that on Monday. Mercury was passing in front of the sun. You saw a little dark disk in front of it. Well, when we look at a star, you don't see it as a disk. You see it just as a point of light. So you can't actually see this. What you see is the light from the star. So you'd watch the light, and the light would dim a little bit when the planet is in front of the star, and then come back when the planet is, th is outside, not in front of the star. This occurs because the planet is fainter than the star. So we're blocking out some of the bright starlight in favor of faint planet light. So we're not going to see, so we're going to dim it a little, a little tiny bit when it happens. It's only a small amount. And we might actually see something like this in terms of the dipping. You might see nice brightness of the star, then it dips down, and then it comes back up. So we might see something like that as it occurs when this happens. So we observe that light curve, and there'll actually be two dips. There'll be a very bright dip here. There'll be a secondary one when the planet goes behind the star. It's a lot less because the planet is so much fainter, so the star blocking out the planet's light doesn't mean as much as the planet blocking out the star's light. But now we can use this to be able to determine a lot of things. We can determine the orbit. We can get the masses of the planet and the star. We can get some estimates of those. We can get an estimates of the diameter. How big is the planet? If it's a very small planet, it's going to dip really fast. It's going to go from being uh, on this side of the star to being in front of the star instantly. If it was very, very tiny. The bigger it is, the, the, the longer the slope will be. So it'll take a longer time for it to be, par it'll be partially blocking part of the sun or star. And the same thing when it goes up. So how, this, how, it, how the curve works will tell us something about the diameter, how big these planets are. We can't see them. You hear about all these, you know, this planet is two times the Earth's size or it's, you know, something. This is how we go about measuring them. We can't see them. We can never, even if we see the planet, we never get enough to be able to measure an accurate size. This is the way we can measure the sizes of the, of the planet. It's also a way we can learn about the atmosphere. When the planet passes in front of the star, how does the star's light change right around there when, the, when it's going through the planet's atmosphere? It's a way to be able to tell something about the atmospheres of these planets. What are they composed of? Again, we wouldn't be able to see it otherwise. And we can get the orbital period, so we can get the masses, the orbital period, just how long does it take? One eclipse, then the next eclipse. If they're days, weeks apart, then you can measure, the, measure that and measure the period of the orbit. So we get that. There's a little more detail here. How do we get these things? Um, how often do these dips occur? 
So if this was somebody looking at our system in the, out in the distance, looking at, the, looking at our solar system, and they were lined up perfectly so that they saw the eclipses, remember that everything has to be lined up to flat, you have to look at it exactly edge on. Just like eclipses are rare because the moon's orbit is tilted a little bit, if we're not lined up perfectly with these systems, we won't see an eclipse. The planet will pass above the star or below the star and we'll never see it. But we can use this to be able to determine a lot of the properties. And I've gone over a lot of this before. Orbital period, just how often do these occur? So if they occur every two days, they occur every, then the period is two days. The Earth would occur every year, once a year. Jupiter, every 12 years. So if you saw a dip now for Jupiter going in front of the sun, you'd have to wait 12 years to see it again. And you'd have to monitor it to make sure it wasn't less than that. Right? You can't just say, oh, I know it's going to be 12 years. You wouldn't know that at the time. You'd have to keep monitoring, waiting for that eclipse to occur. If it was something like Saturn, you're talking several decades, uh, oh, close to a century for Uranus, almost two centuries for Neptune between them. So like the radial velocity method, this is not very good for detecting distant planets. So we can look at the... Uh, planet size by how much of the starlight is blocked. The bigger the planet, the, more, the bigger the fraction of the star it's going to block, and how quickly the eclipse starts and ends. So if it's a really small planet, the eclipse is going to start, go jump right down to eclipsed immediately, and then jump right back up. If it's a big planet, it'll take a little bit of time to wind down and then slowly come back up. The mass we can figure out once we get the orbital period, we get the distances, how far away it's moving, we can get some parameters of its orbit. And then I mentioned the atmosphere. Starlight coming through the atmosphere, how does that starlight compare to the starlight just of the star itself? What else has been subtracted from it? So we can figure out the components of the atmosphere of the planet, if any, from that as well. We're just getting to the point where we're being able to do this for a few of those. Now, the transit method, um, this is the spacecraft that did a lot of it. This was the Kepler Space Observatory, launched in 2009. Uh, I had over 2,000 confirmed planets. It's well over 2,000. I think it's pushing towards almost 3,000, if not more, of those 4,000 planets were detected by this satellite. This used the transit method. Um, and there's also still candidates that we're still studying, the ones that we're not sure of. Uh, data aren't quite as clear that we can be confident that there is a planet there. So what it's studied is in one small part of the sky, it looked at 150,000 stars. And all it does is monitor their brightness. So it just goes from star to star. How bright are they? Okay, brightness, take a picture, take brightness, come back and do it again and again and again, and look for the patterns. Take those light curves, put them together, and analyze those to be able to find out you know, if there are any planets orbiting around them. When you found one that's potentially interesting, maybe you saw some unusual dips in it, then you'd go look at it in more detail. So it looked at lots of them, and it found thousands of confirmed planets. This is looking at only a tiny, tiny patch in the sky. So it's not looking all over the sky. It just pointed in one general area and was looking at the stars there. It also depends on those systems being lined up edge-on to us, meaning we're looking right along the plane of their solar system. Essentially, you're looking right along the edge of a flat piece of paper. If it's tilted by a degree, you're not going to see it. If it's tilted by 10 degrees, forget it. 
If it's tilted too much, then nothing's ever going to pass in front of that star. So we wouldn't be able to see it. So what I'm trying to say is that it only could, could detect a small fraction of what's probably there. If we could detect the ones that are just to say a number tilted at one degree or less, everything that's two, three, four, up to 90 degrees, we couldn't detect by this method. So if it was able to detect 2,000 exoplanets, there's probably a heck of a lot more of them out there that we couldn't detect by this method. So even though it's collect collected thousands of them, there are still far more probably out there that we can't detect through this method. Um, some of the other methods that I wanted to mention just briefly, um, direct imaging, these are the cases where we actually see the planet. This would be an infrared or a radio image of it. Say. Looks like infrared. Uh, infrared image, so the star there, star is invisible. Now you block out the star because the star's light would be overwhelming, even out in the infrared portion of the spectrum. And then you have several planets that can actually be detected. Again, you're not going to see any detail on the planet. We don't know what these planets look like, but we can start to get some estimates of mass and size just based by, you know, this one's bigger because it's a lot brighter, emitting a lot more energy than this one. So you can get some starts to get some estimates of size. It's nice because you can actually see the planet, even though you're not going to look at it the way we could look at images of Mars or Jupiter or anything else that we've looked at in some of our pictures of the day. So that's one method. The other is microlensing. Essentially, the planet acts as a lens. So the star is there. The star is over here. As the light comes through, the light gets bent by gravity. We'll talk a little bit more about how that works later on when we get to uh, black holes and relativity and how that kind of works. But essentially for right now, you think of it as acting like a lens and it focuses the light. So when everything is lined up just perfectly, so they're all in a straight line together, the planet acts as a lens, brightens it up. So it flares up in brightness a little bit. It gets a couple times brighter, a little bit brighter than it was. It's not going to get tremendously bright. You're not going to go from seeing a star that you couldn't see in the sky to not seeing it. But you are going to be able to see a little bit of a change in brightness. The bad thing with it is that you can't repeat your measurements. So you get to see it once. You find the brightness. You can estimate some things about the mass of the planet from that. But you can't really get the orbital parameters because you've got to wait for another star to happen to line up directly with that planet. And that might not be for hundreds or thousands or millions of years before that happens again. So unlike the previous ones where you could watch them and they'd occur again, the radial velocity was a very regular period. The, the transits occurred over and over again with the same period. This is a one-time thing. So if you're monitoring a bunch of stars, as we do, then you find these little flares in brightness would tell us, hey, you know, we just found a planet around this star. And you can make some measurements of it, but you've only got that one bit of data. The last one I mentioned was the pulsar timing. I'm not really going to go into more detail in that, but that was our first discovery of planets when we looked at the variation, how those pulses varied. So they're extremely regular, extremely accurate clocks pulsing exactly, not just you know, every second, but every 1.38265. I mean, going down to millisecond accuracy. So they are extremely accurate. When you saw little variations, it allowed us to determine that there must be something orbiting it. You could determine the masses. It wasn't another star or another other object. It had to be something smaller, like a planet. 
So finishing up here, again, we've got a large number. It's now over four, well over 4,000 that we've discovered, and that number keeps growing. Um, the early indications, we saw the disks around the stars, etc. And the big two methods, the two that are mainly used are radial velocity and transits. Those are the two that have given us most of the planets that we see outside our solar system. All right, so that's how we detect them. Now I want to look at what do we find? So what are these other systems like that we're now finding? So what did we think? Well, thought would be they're going to be like us. Right? We're typically, generally a tip, think we're a typical solar system. So we'd have planets orbiting in roughly circular orbits. Right? We know they're elliptical, but they're almost circular. And then you'd have small rocky planets close to the star and large massive planets far away from the star. It makes sense. The star, sun is hot, so icy material wouldn't form close to the star. So you didn't have as much to build from. You only had rock and metal to form planets close to them. We have Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars close. And you have the big giant planets further away where it was colder and you had more material to build from. So it makes logical sense, but it's not what we're finding. We're finding a lot of new things. We're actually finding planets that are many times the size of Jupiter. And we find planets that don't exist in our solar system. Intermediate-sized planets something between the Earth and Neptune in size. In our solar system, there's a very big distinction. You've got four little planets, tiny ones, and you've got four giant planets. You can take those four little planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, put them all together. They easily fit, fit inside the smallest of the giant planets, easily. Lots of room to spare. So there's a gigantic size difference. Where is anything intermediate? Well, maybe they just don't form. Maybe that's not how things form. We might have thought from our solar system, but that's not what we're finding. We're finding intermediate-sized planets out there. The other one that was a big surprise to a lot of people was what we call hot Jupiters. Well, they're exactly what they say. They're hot planets, meaning that they're close to the star, but they're Jupiter-sized planets. So our current model of solar system formation would say those shouldn't exist. How do you form a planet like Jupiter, that big, that close to a star? How, were you able to, how was it able to get so big? Our models of planetary formation really didn't work with that. Why were you finding the, these? And they're not only close to their star. I don't mean that they're you know, at Earth's distance or even Mercury's distance. They're incredibly close to their star. They orbit in a few days. Mercury takes 88 days to go around the sun. There are some of these that orbit in, actually in less than a day. So they are really close to their stars. They are whipping around in the orbits. Something, again, something we don't see in our solar system. Mercury, our fast planet, takes a leisurely three months to go around. When we look at what we've discovered, uh, orbital periods here, 1, 10, 100, and 1,000 days. So Mercury's period would be right about here. Anything to the left of that? would be orbiting faster than Mercury. There's a lot of planets that exist out there that are very close to their stars. The hot Jupiters would be the big ones. The size of the planet is up this way, so big planets are up at the top, small planets down at the bottom. Planets close to the sun are over here. Planets far from their sun are over here. 
So we find a few things that are similar to us, but a lot of differences as well. In fact, we find that the rocky planets, things that fit down in here, are really common, are a lot more common than the giant planets. Even though we talk a lot about hot Jupiters, because they're interesting, they're not, that, they're not as common. And they're also easy to detect. Remember, if you remember the things I told you about what, what, what the methods detected, especially the radial velocity and the transit. They were very good at detecting big planets and planets close to their stars. Well, these are both of those. They're a big planet that's really close to the star. So they're also easy to detect. So it's quite possible if we had a uniform sample, these might be very rare. The hot Jupiters might be something rare and unusual. But we don't know for sure until we've detected more of them and gotten a really good sample. Some things would be almost impossible to detect way out here on the frontier. Simply means we don't have the ability to be able to detect these by any of our methods yet. So these are very small planets and they're getting very far away from the sun. Earth would be right about 100, 2, 3, yeah, we'd be right about in here someplace, just off the frontier. We're at the point where we can detect Earth-like planets. It's on the edge of what we can do, but we can detect them. Yeah? So wasn't Earth once a lava world? Was it a lava world? It was once molten, okay. but th these are different. These are, star these are things that are so close that they are actually remain. Molten. So the Earth once would, would have been a kind of a lava world, but that's just because of heat of its formation. It was all melted, and then it solidified. These never solidified. So they're still, and then they're so close to their stars. Remember, these, this is one day orbit is right here. So you're getting down here to things that are orbiting in hours. Whipping, they're, they're really close to those stars. You can imagine what those temperatures get that hot. Even a cool star is 3,000 degrees. If you're only getting a little bit away from it, you know, you're going to be temperatures hot enough to melt rock. So it's going to be hot enough that the rock remains molten there. So yeah, the Earth was once molten. That's a good point, but it's a little bit different process than what we would have seen, what we would see here. Well, yeah. I didn't know if we saw any lava worlds that maybe transitioned into Not that I know of, but don't forget, we've only been able to have this kind of graph for the last decade or so where we've had enough of them to be able to look at. So it's, we're still, this is, you know, this is cutting edge. This is still brand new uh, astronomy. You know, if you'd taken the class a decade ago, we would have known very little about it. We've had some, but we wouldn't have had near as much as we have now. Um, so some of them that are easy to detect, and some of them are detected, it kind of highlights what methods are used. Uh, radial velocity works really well for a lot of these larger planets. Um, the... Kepler is all the white, all the ones in white are the Kepler observations. They kind of cut off at a certain point here, about a year. It's about the limit as to what Kepler was able to detect, how long, how long we were able to observe with it to get observations. So we do find a number of those, and we find that kind of gap in between, you know, our planets, Earth right here is the largest of the small planets. Neptune is the smallest of the large planets. So in our solar system, there's nothing in between these two lines. Out in, the, out in the universe, what we've detected so far, that's where most of the planets fall, in between Earth and Neptune. So sometimes they're called super-Earths, really big Earths, two, one and a half, two times the size of the Earth, or mini-Neptunes. They're like Neptune, but a little bit smaller. But these are ones that don't exist in our solar system. 
So nothing we could have predicted even. In terms of the types that we see when we look at them by size, so Mars-sized objects, oh, there's probably a lot of them out there. Those are really hard. That's a lot smaller than the Earth. It's really hard to detect. So the fact that this is small doesn't really mean a whole lot. Same with Earth-sized planets. You know, we're still, we're, this is on the edge of what we're being able to detect. So there's probably a lot more of them that we have just not been able to detect yet. So planets in our solar system are here. So this goes from Earth to a little bit bigger than the Earth and the planets in our solar system are out here. So ours are in these, these two tails of the distribution, but the big peak, we don't have anything in our solar system like it. But those are thousands of the planets that have been detected. This is as of 2016. So this is, this is even outdated probably by about 1,000 planets that have now been discovered since then. I don't think that as far as I know, the distribution has not changed significantly. It's still about the same. There's a lot of planets in this mid-range. So a few things that we see and don't see, things that we don't see within our solar system. Now, some of this is biased by what we call a selection effect. What, and I've talked a little bit about this, but what kind of planets can we detect? Well, radial velocity and transit, that accounts for 90 plus percent of all those planets that have been detected so far. They're really good at detecting large planets and especially large planets that are close to the stars. So things like hot Jupiters, hey, these are perfect for detecting hot Jupiters. So we're detecting a lot of hot Jupiters. Cold Jupiters, like ours, would be harder to detect. If you remember why, 12 years. So it has a 12-year orbit. It's going to take decades of gathering data to be able to see that. You're not going to be able to get it in just a year. If Jupiter is, or if you have a planet like Jupiter orbiting around its star with a period of one week, well, you only need a few months to see several orbits and you've got everything refined perfectly. You've got that orbit determined really well. With Jupiter, you're going to have to wait decades to be able to get enough orbits to get a really good determination. So smaller planets are probably around, but we're just not able to detect smaller objects yet. Things like Mars or Mercury would be smaller and not able to be detected by these methods. They could be detected if they're close. So something like Mercury would be relatively close. But Mercury is not going to block out very much light, especially when you're looking at it way at a large distance. It's going to be really small compared to the sun. And it's not going to cause a very big tug on the sun. So Mercury itself would be really hard to detect. We're not quite to the point. Mercury would have been in that, you know, that area down on the bottom here, out in the frontier, where we're still trying to be able to detect those. That we're getting there as we get more and more accurate measurements. And you see the same. That this might be the frontier, but there's the rocky planets. Look how concentrated they are here. As you go towards larger and larger distances and smaller planets, they start to uh, fade out. There's a lot less. Probably not that there's less there. They're just not detected yet. So we're still waiting for those detections. These are easier to detect. These are harder. We don't have the accuracy to be able to detect those yet. So Jupiter-like planets at great distances, we saw some of them through the radial velocity methods. But we need more time to be able to detect them. So we don't, what we don't have yet is really a good idea of what completely what planets are like. We don't have that random sample of planets where we can take Here's 1,000 random planets 
And these are what planets are typically like. So many percent are like the Earth. So many percent are like Jupiter. So many are like Neptune. So many are in between. So many are smaller. So many are bigger than Jupiter. We don't have a good statistics of that because our methods are intrinsically biased. It's not bad. It's just that's what they can detect. And as they get better and better, we'll be able to get uh, better samples and better detections of these types of objects. Now, we found not only planets, but we've actually found systems of stars as well. And what I wanted to finish up looking at before I give you off to lab is to look at a couple of those systems. And what we find is a lot of planets, we have a number of systems. This is one example of Kepler-90, where there are eight known planets, just like our solar system. There's, there's the zoom in in there is for the inner one. So these are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight planets. All eight planets are inside the orbit of the Earth in our solar system. They'd all be closer than one of our astronomical units to their star. So eight planets known, but they're all really close. It, it makes our solar system seem very spread out by comparison. Now, again, this is one example, so we don't know whether this is typical, how typical this is. Are there, we know there's lots of planets close to their stars, but they're also the ones that we can most easily detect. Uh, the TRAPPIST-1 has seven planets. There they are. Is this still? This is Kepler-90 still. Sorry, this is Kepler-90 looking at the size of the planets. TRAPPIST comes after. Uh, this is looking at, instead of looking at them by orbit, this is looking at the planets, not to scale, but matching them up with the Earth's, Earth's solar system. But remember that this one orbits inside here. So they're not spread out like our solar system is. They're much more concentrated. But there are some that get to the point, depending on that star, you start to be able to find some that become what we call habitable. And the Trappist ones are a number of the other set of those that we look at. All the drawings are artist conceptions. I just want to call it that. Those are not images that we can see of these planets. Based on the conditions that we can determine, what's the temperature like, what's the composition like, we can estimate what the planet might look like. The actual details are probably way off. But we can get some kind of estimate of these. Trappist-1 orbits around a very small star. So these planets orbit as low as one and a half days up to about 20 days for their orbit. So their years would be you know, between a day and a half long and 18 days of ours long. However, some of these are very similar in size to the Earth. Um, this one here, I think, F is little, just a little bit bigger than the Earth and a little bit less massive. This one's a little bit bigger and a little bit more mass, a little bit bigger and a little bit more massive. Several of these are actually in what we call the habitable zone of the star. And what that means for habitable zone simply means that it's in the region where liquid water could exist. Not necessarily does, but could exist on the surface. So that's what we mean by habitable. Doesn't mean that there's life there. Doesn't mean that there was life there or will be life there. Only means that water could exist. It's at the right temperature for it to be something like the earth. And what this has done, what some of these discoveries have done has really changed our ideas of how planets form. So these are some of the others, but just a few images of them. But our model that we use to explain how our solar system forms doesn't explain Jupiter, hot Jupiters. It can explain Jupiter, but it can't explain a hot Jupiter. 
Now we know that even if they're rare, they do exist. How do they form? How do we get objects like this that form? We also detect planets, high eccentricities, really elliptical orbits. We don't see those in our solar system. Orbits are almost completely circular. Or orbiting, orbiting at large angles. So instead of on a flat piece of paper in those solar systems, you can't approximate it with a flat piece of paper. You have to have three dimensions to be able to simulate the solar system. So what we don't know is if our system is unusual, are we the unusual solar system? Or are these the unusual solar systems that we happen to be biased towards detecting? I've already tried to give you some idea that maybe the hot Jupiters, maybe they are rare. And we're just very good at detecting them right now because they're so easy to detect. They're big and they're close to their star. We can detect those really easily. So maybe we're detecting all of them in the systems that we've looked at. Maybe we're not detecting all of the Earth-like planets. In fact, we're probably uh, most certainly not detecting all of them. So there may be some bias there, too. Let me finish up the last of this so we can get, I can get you on to lab. Only got a couple slides to go here. Uh, one of the models shown is that one of the things that has come in in the last few decades is the idea of planetary migration. And that models for our solar system now, trying to put this in, say that we can explain things better if Uranus and Neptune form closer to Jupiter and Saturn and slowly migrated outward through gravitational effects. So got slowly kicked outwards in the solar system. Things could also get kicked inwards. So maybe there's some kind of interactions between planets that we didn't completely understand because we didn't really see it before that can bring a Jupiter-like planet that may be formed further out through gravitational interactions in closer to its star. So this may be something very common. You know, why do we not see planets very close to stars? Yes, we're biased towards detecting those, but we don't see any, we see things that are really overwhelmingly close compared to our own our own star. Um, again, one of the problems with this is that when we came up with our models, we had one solar system to work with. Well, it's easy to make models of things. If you want to make a model of how people work by studying one person, you can make a very accurate model. Won't be very applicable to other people. But you could make, generally, a very accurate model of how, how that person works. Well, that's what we did for our solar, solar model. Didn't have anything else to go on, so we didn't have any choice. <clears throat> but now as we get thousands of systems, we're really getting a better picture of how planet, planets form, but it's something that's still ongoing. So something that we're still trying to study. Um, the last thing I wanted to put up was just mentioning the habitable planets. And I've already talked about, it means a couple of things. It means there is the potential. It's at the right temperature for liquid water to exist. It is similar in size to the Earth. And we have now, so it can't be like a giant Jupiter-like gaseous planet would not be considered habitable. Uh, it has to be something that would be big enough to be able to hold on to an atmosphere. So there's some size constraints on it too. And we've got dozens of those. I said more than a dozen, but it's probably dozens at this point. This is one of the closest habitable planets that we've shown. It's not the Earth. This is actually Proxima Centauri b. Uh, Proxima Centauri is actually the nearest star to us. And this is an artist's conception of the image that you might see looking off in the distance towards that very faint red star. 
So this might be what it looks like, and this is one that is potentially habitable. It's only four light years away, about as close as we can get. And uh, whether, we, whether there's actually life there, we don't know, or what level it is, and hopefully at the end of the semester we have some time and I'll be able to talk a little bit more about the possibilities for life. But I'm going to go ahead and stop there so I give you time for lab. If it takes longer than I think and you need a little extra time, I can certainly give you some time on Monday to be able to finish it up. I should be through. I just don't know. I took a little longer than I expected today to go through exoplanets, but it's usually one people like to hear about. So if you don't quite get through everything on lab, don't stress over it. Don't feel like you have to try to rush if you have to go after. If you're close and you want to finish it, that's fine too.